Welcome to Brave. Be inspired by the best leaders of Southeast Asia tech. Build the future, learn from our past, and stay human in between. I'm Jeremy Ao, a VC founder and father. Join us for transcripts, analysis, and community at www.jeremyao.com. Hey, John, good to have you on the show finally after uh, quite a long while. <laughs> <laughs> I think literally been a year since you tried to chase me out. Yeah, I think also because we know each other for the longest as well. And so <laughs> it's also been the longest time we've been chasing each other for this recording. So anyway, here we are. Really excited to have you because we both started hanging out in Boston as Singaporean founders building something crazy in America. And then since then, our paths have been quite interesting since our days cooking in the kitchen together, <laughs> uh, <and> then, <laughs> to say the least. And, you know, really kind of been crushing it from each funding announcement, but also I think actually building the fundamental business. So really excited to share a little bit more about your story. So for those who don't know yet, how would you introduce yourself? I would introduce myself first and foremost as a Singaporean. Thanks for having me, by the way. I'm just really excited to be here as well. And I'm glad you finally managed to pin me down after a year. And yeah, those were really fun times in Boston. I would describe myself as a second-time founder, Singaporean, very average kind of guy and just with big dreams. So my own personal background, I've, I've trained as a physician, trained at been building hospitals in developing countries, primarily Cambodia for a good decade before moving out here to Boston. And yeah, I moved out here about four years ago to attend grad school. I did my MBA at MIT, did my MP at Harvard. That's when I met you. And <laughs> those cold outreaches. And since then, I, I've been uh, running a company, running Scopes full-time. We started hanging out because we actually came out from the same schools as well, Anglo-Chinese school, so long time there. And what's interesting is that you actually chose to be a doctor after that as well. So why did you choose to be a doctor? I mean, there's always one of the jokes, right? It's like a lot of ACS alumni choose to be doctors. Why did you choose to be a doctor? I don't know if that's true. I don't know that many ACS alumni choose to be doctors. <laughs> I thought first and foremost that health, that medicine was a great way to help a lot of people. And I really wanted to be a part of it. I necessarily wanted to be a doctor per se, like a practicing clinician, but I wanted to participate in healthcare in a big way. So that's why I picked medicine for my undergrad degree. And what were you like as a medical student? We talked about it a little bit, but were you very studious, very practical? Tell us more about what you were like as a medical student. I think I was pretty studious as a medical student. And that was like one of the first few times in my life, which I was actually pretty studious. I felt two ways of thinking about it. I, I, I felt like, um, number one, I had a lot of catching up to do, given that I came from ACS and I was playing my youth away, like just mucking around all day. And then I came to med school and everyone was like super smart, super well-grounded. And I was like, I have so much to, to catch up on. And, and then the, the second part is I just felt this great deal of responsibility. I felt like if I missed out this information, if I didn't understand this concept well, I could potentially harm someone. And so that made me really delve in deep into a lot of topics and a lot of subjects. And frankly, I just enjoyed it a ton as well. I, I just enjoyed the subjects that um, we were taught in, in medicine. And so I think for one of the first few times in my life, I actually sat down and studied a ton. What's interesting is that you chose a specialty, which is what everybody kind of like shows their first secondary choice, but it's actually a key one showing like what preferences you had. Jonathan, could you share about what you chose as your specialty and why you chose it? Yeah, sure. I really wanted to be a surgeon back in the day. You know, ultimately, I, I never completed my training really because I, I, I broke my wrist in a car accident. Started med school wanting to be a, a, actually a pediatric cardiothoracic surgeon, which is basically a heart surgeon for kids. 
And then over time, at some point, wanted to be a pediatrician. And then I realized I didn't really enjoy dealing with the parents, overly anxious parents. And then right before I left clinical practice, I, I was planning on becoming a plastic surgeon, a, a reconstructive plastic surgeon. I think the reason why I chose it was really it was easy to be outcomes-based, where your results as a surgeon are very easily visible to everyone, including your patients, and a lot of people could hold you accountable to it. The other part was there was a lot of latitude in terms of creativity to what you could and couldn't do as compared to many other surgical disciplines. And so that kind of led me down to that pathway. Yeah, it was a real fun time. I had a great time. I made a great deal of friends, who many of whom my mentors and teachers and peers I still keep in touch with today. How do you feel like to have your car accident and have your wrist broken and that changed your trajectory of being a surgeon? I think it was actually really fortunate on hindsight. It was actually a relief. Back in the day when I was practicing clinical medicine, I guess we were just, we were just taught to constantly put our heads down and grind. And one of the things it doesn't allow for is for you to examine the whys. It doesn't give you like space to think and breathe. And so coming right out of med school, we just like rush into housemanship, which is a really rigorous and tiring year. And then you're rushing to try and train a specialist. And the car accident and breaking my wrist really gave me some space to sit back for a bit and think about why I'm in medicine, why I'm in healthcare, realign myself. And it was at that point in time where I was really handed this early opportunity through my experience in building hospitals in Cambodia to understand and participate in the macros of healthcare. And it was what I really enjoyed. It would be a real pity to not be able to utilize those skills to help a ton of people. Not to say like surgery doesn't help people, but it felt like a different scale. And I felt like I wasn't fully utilizing my skill sets. And there's an interesting link here because we talked about it before, which is about being and building those hospitals in Cambodia was actually a big transition point for you in terms of both how you're helping and what your personal role as well and what skills you're doing. So could you share a little bit more about that transition, what you learned from that change? Yeah, for context, Basically, at 15 years old, we, I set up a foundation of my friends and myself, and we, we helped to build some of Cambodia's first pediatric hospitals, pediatric facilities, some of their first open-heart surgery programs for kids, burns and reconstructive units for kids, and neonatal wards. It provided me a, a, a ton of perspective in many ways. So, for example, like the full spectrum of how healthcare is delivered. I, I also had the fortune of training at besides Singapore General Hospital and, and, and UH. I also train at Mass General as well as Children's Hospital in Boston. And these are some of the best hospitals in the world and in Asia. And then I had the fortune of, of working alongside my colleagues in Cambodia and that disparity is so stark. It, it just provided a, a lens into how different and how difficult things could be without the right resources. It just made me believe that could make a real difference if I tried. And what's interesting was because you also started changing some of your skill set because as a surgeon, you were practically training to be like a contributor. You're the one doing the surgery, etc. And then at the foundation, you were starting to organize, collaborate, etc. So could you share a little bit more? Because I think after this, you started kind of like doing more organization building as well. So could you share a little bit more about that change? Just to be clear, the, the foundation came first before, this, before wanting to be a surgeon. I started it back when I was in junior college. I went from like macros and enjoying that very much to somewhere along the way I realized I also do things with my own two hands and, and participate in care a ton. And so I went down a rabbit hole. And then breaking my wrist in a car accident, that, that allowed me to pull my head out and was like, which one do I want to do in the long run? Which one am I going to, is it going to, like, which one is going to sustain me in the long run in terms of career pathing? And what do I want to do in my life? So that's like a really important time and transition. And honestly, breaking my wrist gave me a lot of time to think about it. 
what was the outcome of that? So after breaking the wrist and then, you know, kind of like doubling down on foundation. So we and I both discussed it a little bit, but for those who don't know you as well, what did you choose to do after that? Yeah, I dabbled a bit in, in the macros. And so I basically joined the Ministry of Health for a bit. I used to work in basically governance of surgical policy in Singapore. And then I decided to attend grad school. I said, if I wanted to pursue a deeper insight into the macros of healthcare, I just didn't have the right tools. I didn't have the right understanding of the ecosystem. And it didn't have the right connections. So I said, why not take some time off and rethink the way I was shaping my career and shaping the way I was participating in, in the healthcare ecosystem. Back then, I applied for like a Fulbright scholarship, got that, got a place at MIT and Harvard at the same time. What was interesting is that you started building your first enterprise for that first time. Can you share us more about what that was like? Yeah, so my first company is in Singapore. My long-term goal of trying to close in on healthcare disparities and multiple ways of doing it, either through building a foundation to, that built hospitals or participating directly in care as a physician and then as a surgeon. And then right after that, I built my first company. It's a company in Singapore called OptimiMed. And it basically, one of the things that frustrated me in Singapore was my oncology patients couldn't get the scans done in time. Basically, there's just too, too long of a wait time in public hospitals and no one was doing anything about it. Those wait times were anywhere between three to six months. It still is in many parts of Singapore today where a lot of the hospitals refuse to, well, they acknowledge it, but they refuse to do anything about it. And then there were many private centers that were willing to collaborate that had excess capacity in their MRI scanners in places like Paragon, Mount Elizabeth, Shaw, Shaw, Shaw Center and such. You know, Novena, there's quite a number there. And it made no sense to me that patients who had a reasonable amount of money, wealthier patients could, could access these scans, these private scanners and get the scan done. Whereas the patients I was participating in the healthcare system for, the, the patients who I really wanted to help, could not get the scans done in time, basically because they were stuck in the queue in the public hospitals. And it was really frustrating to me, have to see this over and over again. And so I decided to build a system which, on the front end, allowed patients to, well, allowed public hospitals to have visibility into private center scheduling and availability of MRI scanners. And then on the back end, move data from private centers back to public hospitals. So basically allowing MRI scanners or MRI slots to become a single single pool rather than two separate pools of public and private healthcare, which Singapore is a small country, right? So my view was that it's just resources across the country should just be optimized across sector if you could. So that's, that's my first company we built. It's still alive and kicking, still serving a couple hundred patients a month. It's, we run it mainly to continue to enable patients to receive the scans. I've had many, many patients come to me, even my friends, they're like, oh, I didn't know this company was yours. We just used it. And I'm like, great. My friends' parents, I just sat down with them and they're like, is this company, like selling them or describing the company to them. And they're like, oh, is it OptimiMed? And I was like, yeah. And they're like, oh, we just used it and it's great. That really brings me a ton of pleasure just to be able to impact so many lives and, and help them help patients who need it um, achieve their therapeutic goals faster. That's when you chose to go to Boston and that's when we started hanging out. So what was the motivation for going to Boston and doing a master's degree? What were you trying to learn at that point in time? In coming to Boston, I actually picked the city before I picked the schools. I had worked at, as I mentioned, I had worked in 2013. I was here for surgical training. I trained at Mass General South Children's and I was here for the Boston bombings as well. That one was really an eye-opener. It showed me how a resilient, really top-quality healthcare system could come together under stress, really pull through for their patients. 
The other thing is I really loved how there were a ton of people involved and, and so passionate about various parts of healthcare, all the way from basic therapeutics, basic sciences, all the way down to like care delivery. And to me, there literally is no better way, place in the world to learn about healthcare, right? engage with it. Really wanted to find myself back in Boston to be able to learn about it. I, I see myself as a constant student of the healthcare sector and, and being able to help people. And so bringing myself back out here, exposing myself to it and challenging myself to be able to interact with some of the best minds in the world and learn from them was a huge goal for me. What's interesting is obviously I remember we started hanging out because everybody was talking about, hey, there's another Singaporean there's a, and a founder. There's another Singaporean founder out there you should meet. And I remember reaching out and then we kind of like getting connected to you that way. What, what do you remember about us meeting? I mean, I, I know exactly how you reached out through Facebook Messenger. You're like, hey, your friend said I should hit you up. And then you're like, want to go Shanghai Fresh? Want to go eat the classic Singaporean? You, you're probably wearing the same black colored polo t-shirt, by the way. <laughs> uh, <laughs> one size smaller now, so that's a good use. One, oh, one size smaller. One size smaller. Good, so good. America was a large Uniqlo, now I'm a yeah. medium-sized Uniqlo. So. <laughs> but basically, I remember like this is like in the middle of winter, I think it was like January, and then sitting outside Shanghai Fresh. Yeah, basically, we just go for like Sunday morning dim sum and like totally hit it off. Also, like we meet over good food. This Shanghai Fresh is now probably one of my still still one of my favorite places to go to for Sunday brunches for dim sum. I think it was just a great deal of similarities. I kind of recalled you from secondary school, where you banned my ass from like computer lab for playing too much. Apart from that, there was a, there was a ton of similarities in our journey, and I think in the way we thought about the world. So I, I thought that was like super fascinating. Yeah, and I think what was interesting was both of us were at the time were both. In that sense, founders were figuring out the local ecosystem and then figuring out the next stage. Well, well let's be clear here. You had figured it out. I was still like swimming in a bottle of shit. I, I had no idea what I was doing. At the start. I mean, it's like <laughs> freshmen hanging out for sophomore kind of perspective, right? Yeah. It wasn't necessarily that I was better. It was just more like I had a little bit more time. And I thought it was interesting because I think both of us were just dealing with a lot of the parameters, which was how do you work with VCs? How do you even pitch them? And then versus handling the business versus hiring versus getting stuff done on a personal basis. So there was a lot of stuff that we did. There's a lot of conversations that we had with other founders as well. And then we saw other founders who were busy building in our cohort as well, in Harvard Innovation Labs and MIT <laughs> accelerators. So I thought it was quite interesting. Any reflections on that time from all the peers who all pushed out to build startups? For the reflection between us, I felt like the cultural context was like when we discussed stuff and also the way we approach things were pretty similar. So I think like this just shows up in like cultural context and upbringing plays a big role in when you're, especially when you're leading an organization and no guidance, it just plays a big role in, in how we make decisions. And so that kind of also made it super easy to hang out and whine about the same things in the same way. In some way, it was kind of reinforcing, but I don't, I don't know if that was, that was healthy or not, but it was fun. This is probably like two, three years down the road since we early stage founders and were hanging out. I think even maybe three and a half years, four years. I think at least for the founders that were in our cohort, honestly, like grit and a little bit of smart is probably the, the two biggest indicators of success. You know, who's going to stick through it? Who's going to figure it out, figure the market out? Most folks are taking a big market anyway, but like, do you have enough grit to, to go and smarts to go figure it out? Yeah. Talking about that shared dynamic, I think you even persuaded me to kind of move closer to Europe. So we ended up becoming you, you were like, can I be a roommate? And I was like, no, but you can move next door. <laughs> <laughs> 
Well, let's be real. I was living in a house and what I decided was if I'm living far away from family and my support network, I should live with other founders. Yeah. And I had a house full of founders, but I realized that the problem with living with other founders as roommates is they're not really good on rental payments slash stability <laughs> because <laughs> it's a tough job, right? You know, And so basically all of us would basically like cycle in and out pretty fast because the startup would have to move to a different part of the town or the country, move to the next stage or whatever it was, right? Yeah. So at some point I was like, okay, you know what? That makes sense, John. We should, I should just get an apartment and I just moved in pretty much. Uh, so it worked out. Yeah. The six months that you were living in the same complex was great. We even got a gym trainer. <laughs> yeah, I remember. <laughs> I remember you persuaded me for, to use the same gym trainer. And I was like, what am I doing here? <laughs> it was good. It helped me avoid getting to an extra large, I think. Yeah. <laughs> I, was really, I, I moved from a medium to a large in America and then from a large, it was like, yeah. And I think one thing that we did reflect on quite a bit was just dealing with the stress slash community aspect of it because we were hanging out, we were cooking meals for each other, inviting friends. And then when you and I were celebrating our mini wins, we were like, okay, we invite each other because we were like, okay, who else do we invite, right? (laughs) (laughs) At least for me, it was like, I remember I was like busy working my ass off at the closing. So now you you close your series, you, you just like showed up with a stack of sushi and you're like, dude, I just closed my series A. But I got no friends. Uh, <laughs> yeah, pretty I much. <laughs> I have no one want to celebrate with. I just by the time I finished work, I realized that I can't, doesn't want to celebrate with right now. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah I was like, okay, I eat sushi, no problem. <laughs> I know, right? It's easy, right? It's just like, okay, my job is be here and eat sushi. You know, you know yeah. I think we also, we, I also yeah, I, I returned the favor of eating your food. You know, <laughs> yeah. that you cook it, right? Uh, some similar dynamics there. No, but it was good fun. I mean, I think even now, as I give like early stage founders advice. The biggest advice I usually give them is like, you have to build community of founders around yourself because that's the most helpful folks you'll ever find. The first few years, especially if you're trying to figure out stuff, is extremely frustrating, extremely confusing, very stressful, a lot of lost sleep. I think by the time I got to know you already, it was like beyond the first year, it was like one year in. Like the first year was extremely confusing for me. There's a certain lingo that people expect you to understand. There's a certain way of engaging that folks want you to engage with. And I'm like, I had just landed in the country. I had no idea what was going on. Never met a VC in my life. And I was like, what is this? It was kind of nice to have you around decoding everything and trying to figure out like, why would someone kind of bounce it off and be like, what's the logic here? Why would a VC act this way? How can we work together to tackle it? And I remember also even like looking at each other's, uh, what was my seed deck and your Series A deck? And uh, trying to pitch each other, even though you had no idea what I was working on and I had no idea about your sector. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I remember that as well. And then you were like, hey, Jeremy, here's a bunch of logos. What do you think about that? And I was just like, yeah. okay, great. This one looks more futuristic, right? This one yeah. looks less futuristic. I think there's a lot of peer to peer, as you know, that's a nice lingo upward, but it was just like, yeah, I think it's quite a lonely experience being a founder because I think you're kind of like disconnected, right? Like, I remember my then girlfriend, which became a fiance, which was like, became your wife, which now has a wife. Yeah, you know, <laughs> was kind of like, can you please stop talking to me about startups? And then obviously my parents was just like totally clueless. Obviously, and a lot of your friends, are, I think it's just like you get disconnected, not because they don't like you or they don't want to be understanding of you. But it's just like entered, I don't know, the Netherlands, the purgatory or something. I think I was undergoing the same situation. Unfortunately, my girlfriend became my ex-girlfriend, became this, 
Nope. Uh, nope. <laughs> <laughs> All of a sudden. Uh, it wasn't meant to be, it wasn't meant to be, right? But I think it's interesting because it's just not the right pathing as well. Because it's not an easy path. And I think there's also a, like a lot of good advice and there's a lot of bad advice and there's a lot of advice and there's sometimes no advice. A lot of advice that just like thrown over the wall because they don't really understand you as a founder, don't understand the historical context or the business. And so I find that when folks are one-off with their advice, it's really difficult to trust because you're like, you don't really have context here. Whereas like we were hanging out pretty much every day right after work. And I felt like when you had that kind of context, it was a lot easier to trust the advice because you understand at the point in time, I think I had like 10 people in the company. I would tell you like, oh, my head of product, oh, my, my head of engineering. And you already had the personas and personalities in your head already. So you kind of could follow that narrative and give advice that was contextualized rather than just like all of the base, which I find most people would give. Yeah, you're jogging my memory now, which is the problem is that even if the mentor doesn't have an angle in terms of like their incentives, and of course, I think a mentor can actually correct for that because they can actually say that upfront and say like, this is my incentive, but this is what I should be thinking. I think even if they correct for that upfront, they may not be fully have the context needed to truly understand, right? It's still tough. Decisions aren't straight, necessarily straightforward, right? So for example, so what I found helpful was also like, for example, we, we were pretty much similar life stage as well in terms of like overall financial situation. I have mentors who are like basically successful founders and they would make different decisions because... They have different amounts of money in the bank. They have different risk equations. They have a bigger family, smaller family, don't want to have family kind of situation. Whereas I felt like as we were talking back then, we had a very, very similar, um, not just background, but also like this outlook in life. And also like even like being in big school, like not having the fullest bank account, you're like, ah, damn, you're constrained in a certain way. It was just kind of helpful to not have to like level set and like think about all those additional components and be like, no, 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 this guy's also early stage founder also thinking about things in a similar way, right? The context is similar. And I think that's actually an interesting part, right? Because the truth is you can be friends with lots of people, but you're not necessarily friends with everyone. That's one way of looking at it. I don't know about you, man. I think you're friends with everyone. That's my take on it. Well, I mean, I'm friendly to everyone, <laughs> but not everyone chooses to be friends with me. And the truth is not everyone is a friend of mine as well, because I think there's some sort of reciprocity. Just because I'm helping someone doesn't mean that I trust them the same way they trust me. So there's no reciprocity, which is, I think, the crux of it. In that case, I'm more of a mentor or, yeah, I'm a friend to them, but they're not necessarily a friend to me. So I think there's a little bit of a peerness that gets to happen when you're both in the trenches at that time, which is hard to have, I think. And I think one interesting thing is that we talked about it a little bit since then, is that since then you also started to become that sophomore or junior because now you've like started raised the Series A, the Series B, and then every year we hang out, talk about our stuff. And then now other people are coming to you, right? So how do you feel about that? I read my Series B right now, but I think more people still came to you at your Series A than more than people coming to me at Series B. I think you're just a much more approachable person. I just want to give you that. Uh, okay, but go on. This about you. Because uh, <laughs> I, I did see the number of people that were approaching you for advice. I'm like, damn, Jeremy has a lot of fans. Yeah, I, how do I feel about that? I, I, I think for me, I mean, I'm always happy to share advice, share journey. For myself, I guess I'm still very much thinking myself as like in the early stage of my journey. Sure, we might have hit some stuff out of the park and that allowed us to raise a Series B and allowed us to grow the company pretty fast. But at the same time, like I still feel like I don't have that many things figured out. I'm still trying to learn as much as I can. And, and sometimes that makes me a little bit want to caveat my findings or all my learnings and make sure that folks take it with a pinch of salt as well, right? 
a lot of things that I, I, I realize I think I do is a little bit atypical. And I just don't want folks to like overgeneralize. That's a tricky part of it as well, which is that not only advice can be slanted or conflicted, not only can it be lacking context or the information, but it also can be overgeneralized or uniquely individual. So how do you deal with that? Do you have any thoughts around how you deal with it, either because you're giving it or you're receiving it? I think I do, as you, you previously suggested, kind of make sure that you caveat well, make sure you give the context, as much context as possible. You might feel it's a bit like loss, all right, like you're saying too much. Like someone asks you a direct question, I take like five more sentences to, ask, to answer it rather than just giving you a one-liner. But I feel like giving the context and like making sure that the folks understand the context to which you make the decision, for example, decide on a policy, is really important to give when you're providing advice to other founders. It's, it's certainly not a one-size-fits-all situation and, and I've never had those situations. That's an interesting phrase that you just said, which is choosing to be a little bit more verbose in your context, setting the context is... Actually, some business communication can be seen as like, oh, you're being very long-winded or you're not getting to the point. But at least for some forms of advice, it's quite key so that you don't put someone on the wrong path. I guess starting to look at things here would be when you start thinking about reflecting on all that you've done so far, go from point A as a doctor to building out your first company to building out this new company, then all the way to raising a series A, B and all these things. Could you share a time where you have chosen to be brave? Yeah, I think bravery is, at least for founders, this is pretty much an everyday thing. You wake up and there's a ton of unknown. There's just so much that you're walking into today. It's such a big adventure. For five, 10 minutes every morning, you really have to steal yourself and understand that today could be really awesome. It could be really effing awesome. Or it could really be shit and you have no idea what you're stepping into. And either way, you got to be okay with it. Either way, you, you got to come out on the other side and be like, tomorrow is going to be a better day. Tomorrow I'm going to keep building this company and I'm going to figure it out. I'm just thankful that I have such a great team and I've got such great mentors, such great community around me that if I can't figure it out myself, I'm going to muster all the resources. I'm going to bring together all the resources I have to try and figure it out and it'll be okay. I think that's the daily grind of a founder and taking that five to 10 minutes every morning to, to just be still and steal yourself, have your own ritual. For me, it's, walking to work and playing the same song and making sure that I am prepped up for work, prepped up for my first meeting is important to me because otherwise you really don't know where you land. Tell us more about what that daily ritual looks like for you. For me, it's pretty much like leaving space for myself in some parts. Being intentional about waking up a little bit earlier, taking a, a walk, spending some time with yourself after work, taking a detour again. I used to take one hour walks between office and home every day and just decompress. I'd call a board member, I'd call a mentor, I'd, I'd call you. I just called you on Wednesday to talk things out. It's not just therapeutic as well, but sometimes it's just hanging out with people you trust and being able to share openly and then getting a different perspective sometimes opens a lot of different options that I wouldn't have thought about myself. And I'm like, damn, this is really, really awesome. But also therapeutic and helps me to decompress as well because sometimes the weight on your shoulders is pretty big. When you think about that weight, why is it weighty? Why is it heavy? If you think about it from the company's perspective, you have basically 110 people now working working for iterative scopes and every decision I made, every communication I make changes so many lives. It causes so many people to, to do something. Every product decision I make will potentially impact thousands of patients, millions of patients. Those are weighty decisions. What am I, am I doing the right thing? Am I deciding the right thing? bringing the right folks around the table to help me out? Am I hiring the right person? Am I designing my product in such a way that it truly helps the patient and not inadvertently hurt someone? These are like 
everyday questions that that as we're making decisions in the company, it does weigh on you after all. It, it accumulates and sometimes years later you're like, damn, maybe I shouldn't have done that this this way. Maybe I should have. I think the medical training comes in handy. In medicine, a lot of times we describe this inability to, you know, you shouldn't beat yourself up too much over past things you perceived to be erroneous in the past because you just didn't have the context, the environment at that time. You just used the maximum amount of data, maximum amount of information you had at that point in time and made the best decision you had, you could make. Yeah, on retrospect, could I have made a ton of better decisions? Yeah, I could, but I just didn't have the information, didn't have the context, didn't have the experience to go make it. But what's important is to make sure that you're keeping yourself on the ball there, keeping the, the feedback loops short and learning as fast as you can from it. I think that's really important. How do you take time out for yourself? So you mentioned that a few times. And you take time out for the walks, and then how do you take time on a more regular basis to process all that? Yeah, I think sometimes on, on tough days, on like really tough days, I there's even days where I, I take an hour out and I pick a random computer game and I play it just to go down a rabbit hole. You know it as well. Other times, I'm like, I'm just too stressed out. I need to go on a trip and I book a, like the next ticket out and I travel. Just to remove yourself, because sometimes you spin in circles. In the same environment, you kind of spin in circles. You're, you're not thinking out of the box. You're not, you're not kind of thinking creatively because you're just seeing the same problem in the same, only one way of solving it in your mind. Sometimes removing yourself from the environment helps you to, or like talking, like sometimes I fly down to San Francisco. I live in Boston. Sometimes I fly down to SF to meet some mentors because I'm like, I need a different perspective. I need to be in a different group of people so that I can maybe think about something differently. Oh, I just pick up the phone and I, and thankfully, I've, I think I have an A-class board who are essentially all I can treat as friends. That you know, I didn't come to know them as friends, but at this point in time, I can treat them as friends. And I pick up the phone and I call them as well. And I'd be like, hey, I've got this problem. What do you think about it? Have you seen it at other companies? What would you do if you were me? And, and they don't expect me to do what they say, but they give me their frank opinion. As you do all this, if you had a time machine going back to time, when you were just starting out to be a medical student in your first year, little time machine, you travel back. What would you share with yourself over a beer or tea, whatever you choose? First year medical school? Yeah. Keep working out. <laughs> After NS, man, I let it go down, downhill so fast. Oh my goodness. <laughs> I think apart from that, honestly, I really wouldn't change that much. I've enjoyed the journey. I think it's important to appreciate the choices you've made and just live with them. They all happen for a reason. I wouldn't have repeated everything. Like The choices I've made have led me here. I don't have regret that I'm here where I am today. I just enjoy the amount of empowerment I've had, the amount of friends I've made along the way, the, the number of mentors that are looking out for me today. I'm just like, these are like, I could not ask for better. And I'm just like, you just got to appreciate it and appreciate the journey. Awesome. When you think about all of that, obviously, you know, you also see that the founders were kind of like in the suck. In, in the what? In the suck. What's in? <laughs> they are like in a sucky position as well, oh, right? Okay, you know, okay. Like both like of us at Shanghai Fresh, just figuring stuff out, eating dumplings, eating xiao long pao. And, there were many times <laughs> when we we're eating frozen food out of my fridge. Yeah, exactly. Because we were in, now you're a new term. I've, I've not heard that you use that, but yeah, in the suck. We were in the suck many times. <laughs> <laughs> you know, we have done that and obviously you have different paths and everything. So, what advice would you give to folks who are kind of like in the suck, struggling or not really clear what to do, what the next steps will be, not sure who to talk to, not sure whether the company is on the right path or not, not sure if they should keep going or not, or whether they should keep going or not. How would you help them 
think through it. What advice would you share? Yeah, I, I think one of the earliest skill sets that I learned to have was to talk openly about the problems I have and to describe it accurately. I think many people try to paint a really rosy picture around their startups, around themselves, because there's this pressure to constantly be like, you know, that LinkedIn post of like, proud to announce this, every day proud to announce something. And we're like, God damn it, I know every day cannot be like this. It's the same thing about this like body image problem where you have all these supermodels like posting only success stories on, on LinkedIn, Instagram and you're like, damn, why does everything look so good? And then you feel the pressure to need to, to do the same as well because you're like, well, everyone is enjoying their life. I would say like, that's recipe for disaster, right? So I know, I know like when I hung out with you, I, like we were telling each other, we had some insane stories, right? I, I wouldn't repeat them here, but like the stories were pretty insane of like what happened at work today and you're like, oh my God. How could this even happen? This wasn't even the 99% probability that would happen and someone did it. And being able to share that and being able to be like, share that openly, firstly, is just being able to share the burden. Like having someone to listen to you and having someone to like appreciate that difficulty is number one. But number two, it also, I think inherently the folks around you want to help you out. But if you don't give them a way to help you, if you don't give them an accurate picture, it's just really difficult to help you. Because imagine like for, for three years, every day you're saying like, the sun is so bright, sky is so clear. And then one day you're like, oh, I'm in this deep hole. And then everyone's like, no context to it. They don't understand how you landed there. I think that that makes it really tough for people to understand where you are in your journey. And it's something I highly discourage founders to do. Because we all know it's not, not that easy. I would advise founders to learn that skill early, especially if you're in what Jeremy calls the suck. <laughs> Yeah, I think that's actually a very true statement, which is that you can have all the founder community that you have, but if there's no truth that you're projecting or sharing to the community, the community can't help you either. If you're lying to other people, you're definitely lying to yourself. If you're lying to yourself, you're lying to other people and no one can help you at that point in time. You're building a wall around yourself, right? And we're like, you don't look so good, but you keep telling me it looks good. And I'm like, <laughs> you know, you obviously don't want me to help you, right? You don't want anyone else near you. I'm like, okay, you know those founders, right? We all know... We're all guilty of it in some way. Can't say that I go to VCs and tell me tell them my deepest, worst problems in my life. Okay, but, no one's saying that for sure. <laughs> but yeah, don't don't go doing that. But also, but also tell a true story. Tell them where the problems are because the the really good ones will want to come on board and help you out, help you solve them. Because you know when you when you knock these big problems out of the park, firstly a lot of these problems are solvable. But when you do knock them out of the park, that's when you build a really wonderful big company. Yeah, because at the end of the day, I think the hardest part is. Reality, right? The reality of actually building the business that doesn't want to exist because it hasn't existed yet. It's always easier to, to not do anything, right? It's always easier. Yeah. Right? Yeah. That's the real hard part. <sighs> yeah. You're just uh, reminding me so much about flashbacks of all the time, Joe. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I mean, there were some hard days. I, I, I was like, Jeremy, show me your dashboards. Yeah, crazy. We were sitting downstairs and you're like, I was like, Jeremy, pull out your dashboards, show them to me. What does your dashboards look like? Give me your metrics. Yeah. And you're like, I, I remember you hesitated for like a brief like 30 seconds. You're like, okay, okay screw it. Here, here it goes. Haven't shown anyone, anyone that's outside of the company, but here it goes. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I think I, I benefited a lot from the relationship. When I spoke to you on Wednesday, I, I was like, that's the part which I miss the most, like having someone around to have all the same context and be able to like share the journey with and to be like super open about it. It's tough finding someone else around, but you should. everyone should go and look for that someone. Yeah, I think that's the hardest part is finding your community, your tribe. Yeah, and when you find it, being open. Yeah, you can only find it by truly being truly open. 
Awesome. On that note, I'd love to wrap things up by sharing the top three things that I learned from this conversation, the three themes. The first is thanks so much for sharing about your personal journey as a medical student and doctor to actually that car accident changing the course of your, your trajectory from macro to micro to macro again, and then choosing to become a serial founder and to where you are today. So that was interesting. The second was really interesting about hearing about and I think the requirement of having a true founder community, I think that was something that we discussed in the context of us, I think in Boston, this being like buddies, I guess, and neighbors dealing with similar troubles, dynamics. And I think last year I was talking about helpful, I was talking about some of the daily rituals, but also some of the burdens and requirements of actually, actually mitigating that, which is about being truly open, being accurate about what's going on about finding people that you can trust to hang out with and to collaborate with. So I thought that was really interesting to talk about how to actually mitigate. I think you can say the stress. I think that's one level, but also I think the difficulty about the obstacles. Awesome. Thank you so much, Jonathan, for coming on the show. All right, man. Catch you on soon. Thank you for listening to Brave. If you enjoyed this podcast, please share this episode with friends and colleagues. Sign up at www.jeremyow.com to discuss this episode with other community members in our forum. Stay well and stay brave. <laughs>